Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio, talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan. On today's show, we'll be talking about the post office, which came into the national spotlight last month following the appointment of Louis DeJoy to the position of Postmaster General. DeJoy, who had been a significant donor to the President and Republican Party, went straight to work making cutbacks and changes that have resulted in significant slowdowns to mail delivery. Just this Monday, The Guardian published a report detailing the impact of these changes. Post Office aims for 95% of mail to be delivered on time, and in the first half of this year was consistently in the low 90s by that metric. But after DeJoy's arrival and the changes he implemented, the national rank sank to the low 80s by late July and early August, and in some areas like northern Ohio and Detroit, the rate was in the low 60s. The rate of on-time delivery has risen as some of these changes have been rolled back, but is still below where it had been. This, of course, is taking place in advance of an election during which many states will be massively expanding mail-in voting owing to the coronavirus pandemic. To talk about these changes, I interviewed Jim Bertalone, who among other titles was head of the American Postal Workers Union Local 215 during a career that spanned more than four decades with the USPS. He provided insight and a lot of historical context to the matter, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to the interview. First off, Jim, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show and and talk about your work with the post office. Okay. Can you tell us uh, a bit about your experience working there? My father and both his brothers were postal employees. Um, I left State College. I started State College in 1969. I left State College in 73. Um and we had a bit of a mini recession with our first oil crisis. Okay. And one of the jobs I applied for, um, I was actually working in a machine shop when I got called by the Postal Service and thought I'd give it a try in 1973. Mm-hmm. I, I got in, involved. I grew up in the union household and uh, was a very, being Woodstock generation, I was a, uh, very much into all of that, part of the anti-war movement. Um, my father and my uncles participated in the postal strike in uh, St. Patrick's Day, 1970. And a couple months after that, I participated in a college strike after Kent State and in Jackson State that shut down my state college and um, mm-hmm. about 1,500 other colleges across the country. And um, like I said, in 73, I got hired in the Postal Service. And in 74, I became uh, an elected uh, union steward. And um, I retired in 2017 um, when I was 66. So just doing the math, that's 44 years. Yeah, 44 years as a a union advocate. Um, my my last uh, 27 years was as president of the local. In uh, 1997, I was also elected president of the uh, Rochester Vicinity Labor Council, AFL-CIO, mm-hmm. representing uh, 
about 60 unions in Monroe County and um, 60,000 union members. And in 2000, uh, year 2000, 2001, I was elected as the very first president of the Rochester and Genesee Valley Labor Federation, AFL-CIO, representing about 100,000 union members and uh, over 200 local unions in 11 counties from uh, Monroe County down to Chemung County in the Pennsylvania border. Um, I also served on the New York State um, Executive Council, representing 2.5 million union members in New York. Uh, this year I retired as I continued as a um, I've been a national arbitration advocate for the National Union for about 35 years. And, and this um, is uh, APWU, right, American Postal Workers Union? Postal Workers Union. And uh, they renewed me in January, but I, I asked them, uh, I resigned. I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> was, was that just um, a, a factor of age, or was there something more that led yeah, to that? No. I had a passion for it all my life, but, you know, it was time. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, uh, they say a lot of us union advocates are frustrated lawyers, and uh, um, <laughs> labor arbitration is, in fact, um, part of the federal court system. It's binding. The decisions are enforceable in the federal courts, and it works like a court proceedings. The standards of proof are a little different, but there's testimony and cross-examination taken under oath and the binding decision that's in the federal court, which, like I said, 40, 45 years was enough for me. I was ready to retire, and, um, and I enjoy, have enjoyed my last couple of years of retirement with my wife, who's a retired postal employee as well. And uh, So that's, that's pretty much the history of the postal service stuff. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious, what sort of, like, changes to at labor law or just the working conditions at the post office did you experience over those decades? Well, coming in after the strike, it was um, enormous change. When they passed after the strike of uh, the Postal Reorganization Act of 1970, we became the only federal union under the National Labor Relations Act with the exception of the right to strike and the only federal employees union that had collective bargaining rights over wages, benefits, and conditions of employment. I mean, to this day, all other federal employees and federal employee union, in order to get a raise, they got to go to Congress, and Congress has got to pass it, and the president has to sign it. Uh -huh. So we had actual collective bargaining rights where if we bargained to impasse, there was a, what they call interest arbitration to settle our contract was uh, – um, we have, though there have been a wildcat strike here and there over the last 50 years, um, there has has not been a full blown strike like there was in 1970. Um, and you, well, of... I, let me give you let me just okay. give you one example. Okay. When I, my father was a letter carrier, and in 1969, when I went to state college, top pay for a letter carrier was $8,400 a year. And you had to be there 21 years to get the top pay. He didn't have 21 years, and they all worked second and third jobs, or my father did. And the poverty level for a family of four in New York was a, about a little over $11,000 a year in 1970. 
Okay. So my, we were under the poverty level, um, not an extreme pot of poverty. We were a family of six. And uh, my first year, I, I got a national student defense loan for college, and you had to be under the poverty level to get that. The right to collective bargaining is what brought postal workers into the middle class and made it a good union job with decent benefits. And it continues to be a nonprofit uh, corporation. Uh, whenever we have made a profit, that's supposed to subsidize losses in the off years before a rate increase. And um, the, the government has pretty much over my career tried to grab any um, money we finished in the black to try and make their deficits look smaller. Um, as a union leader, what, what sort of complaints would you hear from workers, the rank and file, sort of what were they facing on the job? What annoyed them? I'm curious. Well, during good times, it would be minor things like, you mm -hmm. know, issues over administrating overtime that we'd straighten out or seniority disputes. Um, during bad times, um, there would be uh, horrible safety issues. You know, beginning in 1986, um, I think the zero tolerance policy started in the Postal Service since in 1986. We had a, a guy in Edmond, Oklahoma named Pat Sherrill who killed about 20 of his coworkers. Um, you know, in retrospect, they found that he was suffering from PTSD. Um, and when I began in the Postal Service as a union rep in 74, about 40% of the workforce in the Postal Service was veterans and disabled veterans. Mm -hmm. due to, uh, we're, we're the largest civilian employer of veterans you know, outside the federal government. Today, it's about 25% of, mm -hmm. of uh, postal workers are veterans. And uh, there was a spate of killings in, in the late 80s and early 90s in the Postal Service as guns per proliferated. So there was tension and stress. Quite often, the way um, employees were treated, um, you know, uh, without dignity and respect, and 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 sometimes talked to as if they were children. Uh, and I think some of that had to do with, you know, our Title VII of the Civil Rights Act uh, came a generation before, at the end of World War II, with uh, the great uh, civil rights and labor leader A. Philip Randolph getting Roosevelt and uh, uh, through Eleanor, his friend Eleanor Roosevelt, and then Truman to sign executive orders to um, stop all discrimination in um, federal hiring, federal employment, and in the military. Um, so, you know, we had already had a generation of um, that, and, we, and about 40% of postal employees are, you know, people of color, and uh, in my union, the, probably the biggest change from 74 to when I retired, I would say more than half of my members were women in the American Postal Workers Union. And in the clerk craft, the largest craft in my union, over half were certainly women. You, you described some of your background coming from a union family. I, I, I get the sense that's not necessarily a, a common experience in this generation with um, no. some of the decline of uh, organized labor in, in this country. I right. And when I started, you know, um, in this country, 25% of workers in this country were in unions. 
in the 50s and 60s, it was a third. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in New York State, that was actually much higher because in the Deep South, the old Confederate states, right. you know, they didn't know pretty much didn't know too much about unions except the phone company and the post office, you know, mm-hmm. the old AT&T. Um, so uh, sometimes our own unions forget that before NAFTA and before China, um, you know, when I was a kid in the 50s, Rochester was the third largest manufacturer of clothing in the United States. You know, long before they went to Mexico, they went to the non-union minimum wage South, um, and that which is what the movie Norma Ray was all about 40 years ago. So, you know, this is a battle that's gone on forever. And um, become growing up in the union household, especially in New York, um, was uh, uh, still... Um, a pretty common experience, but it was a much more common experience back then. Right. Not to put you too much on the spot, but I'm curious what solidarity means to you. What what that value says to you? Well, it's it's um, whether it was part of the anti-war and civil rights activism or um, labor solidarity. I've always tried and said it in many of my speeches. It's not just a slogan it's it actually is a strategy that works and whether whether in the old civil rights movement the uh who uh you know how picked up that banner the struggle continues from the slogans of the labor movement or in today's uh black lives matter movement and um the occupy movement and mm-hmm. uh, that these things actually do work and it has to do with building power too many, even my own union members, think the union's supposed to give them something because they think it's right or fair. And I would often explain to them, you get nothing in this world because it's fair. You get it because you have, you build the strength and you have the power to get it. Nobody gives it to you for it's fair. If anybody thinks they're going to get anything from Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell before they're fair, they're living a delusional life. And... um there have been these changes to uh, the post office in recent years and even just in the past few months that have uh, garnered a lot of public attention. What, what can you say about what has happened there um, to the extent that you know? Uh, it depends how far you want me to go back. You want me just to talk about what's going on with our current postmaster general? Um, that would be a good place to start. I, I am fascinated to hear it all. All right. Well, just as a little background, in 2006, George Bush and the Republican Senate passed the Postal Enhancement and Accountability Act, mm-hmm. and which was nothing but an attempt, again, to make the deficits look smaller and um, to privatize the Postal Service by sabotaging it from within. And they said that we, we had to pay. Now, this is a corporation set up not to make a profit to pay $55 billion in 10 years for the projected um, uh, deficits in paying for health care for our retirees and our current employees. In other words, to finance in 10 years health care benefits for the next 75 years. Not even bored. And in the first three years, they made those payments um, before the bottom fell out. And in those first three years, there was no unfunded liability. The Postal Service continued 
and continues today to pay the health their share of the health benefits for the retirees. The retirees pay their share, and for the postal employees. So um, it was just a paper transfer. There was no real liability there, and um, uh, and that kind of put us behind the eight ball, just as first class mail was going south with you know emails and technology and and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, we we get to today with the joy and um i still have a very close relationship with my national president he's a longtime friend uh, we were on the first our national president mark dimenstein where we were on the first oh 25 years ago postal organizing committee for private sector postal jobs private sector mailing pre-store houses um trucking companies that are contractors who you know haul our mail and um, in his local, Greensboro was our first big victory of about 100 truck drivers. They sent me down to Greensboro and after they were having trouble, and we got the first contract. So I've known him for a long time, and I called him and told him, this guy is in there, especially with the issue of mail ballots, to sabotage the post office. And he didn't want to jump to that conclusion, but that became pretty obvious after the first few weeks of DeJoy being in the office. And we had a and we had a, a record to go on because Trump has done this with every agency, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a, a Betty DeVos in education to sabotage public education or the EPA while they're rescinding environmental rules that protect the air and the water. I mean, you can see this. He's done this, and whether uh, uh, they put uh, a union-busting attorney from the Right to Work Committee, Scalia, in charge of the Labor Department who's been rescinding all kinds of regulations to protect workers. OSHA, we're in a pandemic where thousands of workers have become sick and died on the job, and we have the fewest OSHA inspectors, safety inspectors, since 1970 when the law was created. So that's a little bit where we are. Now, this postmaster DeJoy, he immediately came in and said trucks had to leave on time and no overtime, in addition to taking a lot of machines out of commission. I, I'm just curious, what um, when you say trucks have to leave on time, what sort of impact does that have on workers' routines and the mail getting delivered? If the truck leaves on time and the mail's not ready, to not, and all the mail's not ready to go, all the mail that doesn't make that truck is automatically delayed another day. And if that's mail that came here from out of town, say mail that came from Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or New York City, destinating for the Rochester area, and the same thing happened down there, so now you're automatically adding two or three days, a day or two uh, delayed delivery from it getting here, and a day or two delivery from us delivering it. (laughs) And so we would always hold trucks, you know, 10, 15 minutes, this is compounded by the pandemic, where you've had as many as 8 to 10% of employees out for weeks at a time who either tested positive for COVID or had to be quarantined for COVID since April. Something mm-hmm. like 8,000 postal employees. And without hiring to replace them, that, and, and that made the mail even more delayed because you've had, you know, we've had, I think like 8,000 people either sick with COVID or quarantined for COVID, and we're getting close to about 100 postal employees have died from COVID 
um, since April as well. So if you don't hold the trucks, we've actually had trucks, I've heard it from my friends around the country, they had leave on time, but they sent them out with no mail because the order was to leave on time. How does that save money paying a, a, a company to, <laughs> to send the truck out with no mail? So what postal employees always do, even on nights when they're short, is they try and get every piece of mail they've got that's scheduled for delivery on that truck, even if the carriers have to wait a few minutes so that every possible piece of mail can get delivered that day that can possibly get delivered. I'm sort of reminded there have been stories recently about planes taking off and landing without any passengers, just sort of continuing the usual routine of... um, because that's what companies know how to do is and yeah. Yeah. sort of logic never enters into the equation. It's Well, well and you get the, the, the private sector companies get these bureaucracies, and, and that's part of the problem. Sometimes bureaucracies read by themselves. Uh, Robert Citron, who was head of a lot of this logistics at, uh, who I used to deal with regularly, he came out of Rochester. He was a manager in Rochester. You know, they deliver these orders to their bosses. I want every truck to leave on time. And then when they it, it hits the fan, like it did in Congress, and the mail's delayed and they find out trucks are going out with no mail on them, then they blame the supervisor, says that's not what he meant. Hmm. You know, so if they send, don't send the trucks on time, you're in trouble. And if you send them out on time and they don't have enough mail, you're in trouble. The old heads I win, tails you lose deal right. there. That's how these big bosses cover their, their bottoms. Um, and, uh, and and we have certainly have some of that in the Postal Service. There's um, always sort of a disconnect between, you know, what the people on the ground who do the work do and the people making these sorts of decisions who may not have been on the ground for quite some time, if ever. Yes, and um, I think, oh, in the past 10 years we fought for, we got uh, pilot programs, and one of the things that we did in my union is we eliminated a lot of bosses. And I was brought in to Washington on um, three national negotiations. My last one about 10 years ago started this program, which we call Proof Chiefs which you have an employee bids a job, and they kind of run an operation on the floor instead of a supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it really has helped. You know, they don't have the power to hire and fire and discipline, but it's, it's again, the people who know the job. Um, and, and you see this all the time. A letter carrier gets promoted to a station manager. Well, they've never, they may have been a good letter carrier, but they never ran the front, uh, office of a retail operation dealing with the public in their lives. You know, people get promoted to places where they have no experience. And somebody who's been working as a window clerk for 30 years doesn't leave a letter carrier to tell them how to serve the customers. They know the job. Sometimes it's just leaving people alone. They know what to do. They know how to get the mail out that door. It um it always warms my heart to hear about bosses being eliminated instead of workers for a change. Yes, yes. And, and we were, one of our, our, the Postal Service was because of this Postal Accountability Enhance, Enhancement Act and pre-funding, we're looking for a way to save money. And every boss we replaced pretty much in salary and benefits that saved them ten grand. 
mm-hmm. um, and pay him the and and it's we it's, at one time we had something like one boss for every eight bargaining unit employees where the private sector was more like one to 20 to one to 25. And it was ridiculous. I mean, I had op-ed pieces uh, in the Democrat and Chronicle where all the bosses got mad at me because I pointed that out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was one of our problems. Too many. I think Lane Kirkland, the head of the AFL-CIO said it in, uh, when Ronald Reagan was president uh, almost 40 years ago, that we are fast becoming a nation of people who supervise the work instead of the people who do the work. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I I think it's right to point out uh, when you talk about uh, the law passed under Bush and some some of the other departments uh, that Trump the Trump administration has gutted that these changes are part of a broader Republican project. You know, it's always been a a goal of the party to gut public services wherever yes. possible. Yeah, shrink government, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, when I was growing up, when I was in grammar school, Eisenhower sent Nixon out to call Adelaide Stevenson the commie and the socialist. And though they don't use commie, they say socialist and liberal like they say, like it means communist. And, um, you know, if Bernie Sanders could have got more in time from our mainstream media, I've been saying for years, Americans love their democratic socialism. They love their post office. They love Social Security. They love Medicare, public parks, public roads, public airports, public schools, firefighters. I mean, you name it. They love their democratic socialism, and they love their military. With the taxpayers take, I, I had lunch um and uh, a candidate, we were a veteran, we were trying to get elected with General West Clark, who at that time had been the first Allied Supreme Commander of NATO since Eisenhower. He was retired, and he had run for pres- the Democratic nomination. And I says, can I ask you why the Democrat? I thought all generals would be Republicans. And he said, we're Republicans when we're generals because they give the most money to the military. He says, when they retire... We retire, we're Democrats because we're all socialists. He says, we've been paid by the government our whole lives, food, clothing, college education, medical care. It's all taken care of by the government. Hmm. But you won't hear Republicans talk like that. They've they've always been Keynesians, you know, John Maynard Keynes. It's just their job program is the military. Hmm. To get back to some of the uh, recent changes, what sort of things are you hearing about the impact that's having on workers on their day-to-day? Well, on, on the day-to-day, sometimes there's an overwhelming feeling that they don't have enough hands and work hours to get the job done. Um, and there's also been a change in the mail. I mean, it was already happening before the pandemic. You've seen where retailers and big box stores, there were fewer and fewer as Amazon took off. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were delivering more Amazon. So there's been a huge upswing in packages, uh, which is heavier work and more labor-intensive work. Unlike the letter sorting machines they've taken out, which will work 30,000 letters to the carrier um, automated and, and through automation and photonics, um, 30,000 letters an hour, there's no machine that can work 30,000 packages an hour. Right. A lot, of, a lot of that is, is there's some mechanization that helps improve productivity, 
but there's still a lot of manual labor handling. And um, also our vehicles, um, you know, every time uh, gasoline goes up a penny, it's over a million dollars for the Postal Service. When you go to um, uh, 160 million addresses in 50 states and U.S. territories. Um, And our vehicles, most of our vehicles are not built for all the packages as opposed to the mail. So now they've got to make two and three trips back to the office in order uh, because their their vehicles can't hold all the packages. So that's increased cost. And then, again, it's a cutting off overtime at a time when you've got a pandemic and a huge percentage of employees out of work um, um, can make it very frustrating. And, and it also makes it frustrating because people tend to know their customers. I think the last Pew research gave the Postal Service a 91% approval rating. Hmm. That's that's about 15 points higher than number two, which is forest rangers. I don't know why people wouldn't like a forest ranger, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, so they know. They know, you know, the elderly people, if they don't get to pick up their mail for a day, they check out and make sure they're okay. Um, so they know the kids in the neighborhood. Um, they, we deliver something like uh, $1.4 million worth of medicine every single day. Uh, we deliver medicine to 330,000 veterans alone. Um, poor rural areas. Um, that's one of the things that Senator Gillibrand and Bernie Sanders just in- introduced another bill on postal banking. Um, uh, something we used to do through the late 60s. You've got about 80 million people, mostly in the southwest of the United States, who are underserved and have almost no banking services. You have um, you have our inner cities where people cannot afford with banks charge and can't keep enough money in the bank to avoid charges and checks. They can't afford what banks charge for money orders. You go to um, whether uh, it's rural areas or you go to Thurston Station, downtown station, poor people are lined up there at the first of the month because that's the working poor because that's how they pay their bills. They go to the postal service and buy money orders. They don't have checking accounts and debit cards and and all the rest. Um, Rural people depend on the mail, especially the elderly, Um, again, for their medicines, for their packages. Um, It's something to bind the service together. People who talk about privatizing, this is a $70 billion pie they want to get a piece of. Yeah. You you send a letter to Alaska from here for 55 cents. You go over to UPS or FedEx, it's over $50. And when they get to the San Francisco airport or the Seattle airport, they put 55 cents on it and they throw it in the mail and we take it the rest of the way to Alaska. I don't think people recognize some of the scale of the work the post office does, even now in the face of cuts, the amount of mail they go through, the amount of work they do for companies like Amazon, for companies like UPS. Uh, People have no idea what 160 billion pieces of mail, a lot of it, you know, 30% of the packages now, what it looks like, or or going to 160 million addresses a day. Um, You know, people don't know we deliver more mail than UPS and FedEx combined 
in a week than than they usually deliver in a year. They're not set up to go to every type of house. With, with still with over 30,000 post offices as part of the infrastructure, you know, we have more more um, more places than, than McDonald's and Walmart and Starbucks and, and Burger King combined. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a whole different thing. And in many communities, especially rural communities, the only contact that uh, people have with their federal government is, is through that um, mail delivery every day. You had mentioned a, a little bit earlier that there's obviously this motivation beyond just the usual Republican motivation to privatize everything. With um, the upcoming election and due to the pandemic, the fact that many states will be looking to hold um, elections primarily via the mail for the first time, Right. What sort of impact will that have on postal workers, all these ballots being added to the pile and in the face of all the cuts happening to stop that effectively? Well, now the Postmaster General DeJoy has reversed, has been forced by Congress to reverse his stand. So I, <laughs> I think there's a, we have to be vigilant, but the possibility is is much better than it was when he first came there because he's had to back off on delaying trucks and on overtime. As long as they put on the overtime, um, I, I think we'll be all right because even with the vast increase in mail ballots, we handle every December bigger increases than that during the Christmas rush. Um, <laughs> Then, then you're going to see in mail ballots. There are still problems with certain states, you know, um, postmarks. Um, you know, if it was postmark timely accounts, some are saying it's got to be delivered by election day. Um, so, so people have to make sure that they're going to vote by mail. They do it right. They do it early. Many states and uh, are putting up drop boxes so if they want to drop it off at their polling place or at a drop box they don't have to put it in the in the in the mail um but some of the stuff that they're putting out like um, you know if you move to texas and you live in new york your ballot is going to get forwarded to texas and somebody could illegally vote it's all lies it's all lies mail every piece of election mail I have seen in 45 years is endorsed by the board of elections with do not forward return to sender <laughs> because when you move, you got to re-register to vote. So if the person's not at that address, the post office sends it back to the board of election election mail does not get forwarded. So I, I think we could be all right as long as local postmasters and, and managers have the authority to put on the overtime necessary and the transportation necessary to make this successful. And I think they will. The problem will be with this administration trying to claim that if we don't have a result that night or the next day, because it takes a while to count all these ballots. Right. It's not that somehow it's illegitimate, and it's not. You have a constitution, and they have until January for the board of electors to 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 meet, and um, you know. And if there is uh, some reason they can't determine a victor, um, you have the courts, and 
and or the election goes to the House of Representatives. I mean, there is there is a procedures in place, a, a, a U.S. Constitution, though our president has never read anything except the second article, um, that, that, is, that provides for these types of things. So I think there's a much bigger danger of propaganda undermining um, a mail election than, than the actual mail election. I mean, we've had many states have been doing this for years without a problem. And you take places like Oregon and Washington, instead of getting 25 or 30 percent of the people to vote, they get 50 to 80 percent of the people to vote with mail-in ballots. So. Now, more broadly, I want to ask you, what would it take to see some of the changes to post- postal workers' working conditions reversed? You know, assuming uh, the Biden administration comes into power in January, what sort of things could be done to improve the post office's um, struggles? One, the first thing would be to go back and redo the Postal Enhancement and Accountability Act and rescind that pre-funding requirement. You know, none of us in the Postal Service, including the union, have a problem with us paying our own way. But them grabbing postal revenues like fifty-five billion in ten years—that's a mirage. To uh, uh, make the post office fail and to move it closer to privatization is is just is just part of the uh, um, privatization agenda of the right and has nothing to do with reality. So that would be number one. And number two, uh, making sure that it is uh, properly funded and that each class of mail pays its way. I mean, we've had a problem going back to when the Postal Service first began automated from mechanization where they give discounts to big mailers for, like, advertising mail, where they can send it as as little as a few cents a piece if they pre-sort it. So you've got all these private sector mail ports. Well, we can pre-sort it. We've showed before Congress time and time again we can pre-sort it on our machines just as cheap as the private sector can. And and they're, in effect, giving away our revenues. You know, if the private sector can pre-sort a 1,000 pieces of mail for $0.02 cents a piece and the postage is $0.09 cents a piece, that's $0.07 cents is where these private sector mailers make their profits. Right. So, so you have pitney bows and everybody setting up minimum wage jobs and getting rich on work that the Postal Service could do itself. It's it's a, like a backdoor privatization. So make sure each class of mail pays its weight instead of giving these subsidies to the private sector. Um, and, and, and secondly, in times of emergency, adequately fund it. This pandemic has hit the Postal Service very hard because of the loss of employees and the illness and the death. Um, and the social distancing and all the rest, just like it's hit our private businesses. Um, so it's, it's estimated the pandemic costs um, between now and 2022, those additional costs of the pandemic alone are going to cost the Postal Service $17 billion. Well, we gave half a trillion dollars to the private sector, including corporations that don't need it, including billions to cruise ships who aren't even incorporated here and don't even pay taxes, 
and seems to be nothing but a, a, a floating disease <laughs> of sources. I mean, how can you get to cruise ships and not on a postal service that people depend on, especially the poor, the elderly, and our veterans? How, how can you do that? So this is a national emergency. You take places like just got hit by hurricanes or the wildfires in California. Well, there are post offices that are burning now. There are deliveries that cannot be made where people have to be found who've lost their homes and all kinds of national emergencies. So you have a national emergency with the pandemic, with um, climate change. So this is a time, just like a lot of private businesses, the Postal Service needs a little extra help to get by. I think that's well put. Um, I don't have any further questions. Do you have any last thoughts before we wrap this up? Well, I was a history major in college and continued to be a student of history. And I got to say, there are so many great history books, both on race and, you know, there's Harold Zinn's history, uh, great. But I think probably in the last 10 years, the best history book I've read has been Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine and the History of Disaster Capitalism. And with Milton Friedman, you know, the magic of the market will solve everything, and greed was good. And the first place they tried it out was the first September 11th, in 1973, when Nixon and Kissinger overthrew a democratically elected president named Salvatore Allende, and they bought in Friedman and his boys from Chicago and privatized everything, and we had the mothers of the disappeared, we had killings and tortures, and, um, and 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 it took Chile 20 years after he left to recover from Pinochet and the boys from Chicago. You sell things for a song, you privatize everything, they privatize their Social Security. Well, they finally got all that back. I think a history of Chile and, and where what's happened since Milton Mil- Friedman and the Republicans bought into this stuff that it would really um, show that, you know, you want an economy works for everything. And I think my biggest issue with our media has been touting how great Trump's economy has been. It was horrible before the pandemic. According to places like the Brookings Institute, 40% of workers in this country are working for a median wage of 12 bucks an hour. During this pandemic, the richest 10% of Americans have added another half a trillion dollars to their wealth. Um, for-profit health care. Well, our health care dollars are going to executives and stockholders who don't cure us, um, don't cure diseases, don't invent a cure. It's a complete opposite of what they promote, meritocracy. They don't pay it to the best doctors and the best nurses and the best scientists. They're they're going to this one percent business class. So, um, you know that that I mean, to me, something like uh, the shock doctrine should be read by all modern students of history and and business. I've uh, read some of Naomi Klein's work myself. Um, it's it's very good. Um, thank yeah. you once again for joining us. Um, uh, see ya. 
My my pleasure, Ryan. Uh, you know, Gannett isn't much interested in my articles anymore now that I'm retired <laughs> and don't have titles. So nice talking to you, young man. You're welcome. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. Before we conclude this episode, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that this past Sunday, September 20th, marked the three-year anniversary of our first episode on Whale. I don't think any of us at the time had the slightest idea of what three years of putting on a show like this would entail in ways both good and bad. Um, This hasn't exactly been the way we thought it would turn out um, when it started. We had very different ideas for what this show would be. Um, This has always been a collective project, and there have been a lot of people who have contributed in ways both big and small to help punching out get where it is today. Too many to list off, to be sure. You've uh, heard many of their voices over the course of now 118 episodes, but we also owe a debt to those you haven't heard, mainly uh, the folks at WAO who both gave us this time slot and have helped us out of more than a few technical jams. we, there are a few episodes that we would not have been able to record if they hadn't you know, come through to save our asses effectively. Um, we haven't been able to record in studio for six months now due to uh, coronavirus, obviously, but I hope we'll get back there soon. It uh, beats the hell out of recording from my bedroom. Um, I hope I've said enough for this week. I'm Ryan, and this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>